Hi friends, this is Will Dyer, the pastor here at the First Baptist Church of Augusta. Welcome to our podcast. I hope the message that you are about to hear will give you some joy in your day. But more than that, I hope that this message will connect you to Jesus. The mission of our church is to connect people to Jesus Christ in a community of faith. And it is my greatest hope that the message you are about to hear will better connect you with Jesus and His way in the world. outdoor kind of person. I remember as a child we lived in this house that backed up to the woods and within those woods were a creek. I would walk all up and down that creek playing in the water, uh, traversing the ground, playing soldier. I I grew up on Lake Hartwell and was skiing by the time I was five. Quickly took to kneeboarding and tubing and eventually wakeboarding. I took on outdoor hobbies one after another, expense after expense, but I really enjoy fishing. Now my wife Lindsay, she would say, I still enjoy a lot of things and have way too many hobbies. I'm not going to doubt her on that, but my two biggest hobbies are hunting and fishing. Now while hunting is most likely my favorite, there are designated seasons throughout the year and fishing, well, I can go whenever I want. I mean, I can go whenever Lindsay says that it's okay for me to go. One time, as I was a younger child, my parents, they went to go play golf one evening and they asked me what I was going to do for the rest of the evening. So I told them I would probably go fishing and they kind of chuckled and said, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. Well, see, the reason that they laughed was because we didn't have a pond in our neighborhood. And in fact, the closest one was two miles away. So what they didn't know was even though I wasn't allowed to ride on my bike that far. I had $10 in my wallet, and that was enough to pay a taxi cab to come and pick me up in the country with my fishing rod and tackle box in tow and take me to the pond. Never mind the fact that I didn't even have a way to get back home. Now, thankfully, I'd called a friend, and his dad and my friend met me there at the pond. And we fished for a while, and then the dad eventually took me home. So my parents, they get home from the golf course, there I am sitting in the kitchen with fish swimming in the sink as I'm cleaning them. So regardless to say, I will go to extremes to enjoy my hobbies. Fast forward a few years later, I'm at this small school in South Carolina called Erskine. Now Erskine is in Due West and well, that's the only thing in Due West. And Lindsay went to A&M in Texas and we often joke about the fact that she would sit in a class that has as many students in one class as my entire school did. Like most schools, we had uh, fall and spring semesters, but Erskine had these short one-month winter semesters after Christmas break. They're called Jan terms. And they were made primarily for seniors that would have to go and intern as part of their degree. I would have to spend one Jan term interning for mine. I actually worked at First Baptist Church in Greenville where I interned underneath Glenn Adkins, a former music minister here. While all the classes were educational that were offered at Erskine for the Jan term, some were more appealing than others. One of the classes offered was fly time with Dr. Christie. Prior to the class, I had no experience with fly fishing. 
really didn't know much about flies, and uh, I really didn't know much about anything pertaining to fly fishing, but I knew I liked fishing, so it was kind of a no-brainer for me. And Dr. Christie was this English professor who was always kind, rather soft-spoken, and always had an encouraging word. In his class, we learned how to cast a fly rod, watched a river runs through it, and of course, how to tie flies for fly fishing. We started with the basics on fly tying with these simple terrestrial creatures like caterpillars and minnows, which in the fly tying world are called woolly boogers and streamers. We moved into tying early stage flies that are born in streams called nymphs, and eventually moved into tying dry flies like a mayfly, flying ants, or something like what I'm tying right here, which is an elk hair caddis. Each step along the way, he would walk around the room and inspect our tie flying. Now, I remember some students were better than others, and I learned what to listen for from Dr. Christie to see if it was truly a good fly. If it was a really bad fly, he might say, put some flashaboo on there, which is this monofilament glittery type thing, and it would at least maybe catch the fish's eye and make it think about taking the bait. If it was a decent fly, he might walk around the room and say, looks impressive. But if it was a really good fly, he would just come up real quietly, whisper, that'll catch fish. It took me a while to learn how to tie a good fly. Dr. Christie was great at giving us guidance. I would watch him tie a fly and think, well, that looks pretty simple. I would sit down, pull out my vise, get the material, and start working on it. And it would turn into this rat's nest of thread and feathers and hair, something that was worthy of flashaboo. Even though I watched him do it, it wasn't as simple as it looked. Even though I knew the steps to take, I just couldn't replicate what I saw him do. You know, a lot of times when people are struggling with something, they look at other people or things and tend to blame them or those objects for their lack of success. At first I would say to myself, well, his vice is better, or his thread is thicker, or his materials are just more expensive than mine. Mine are cheap. But eventually I had to come to grips with the fact that it was just me that was getting in the way of tying a good fly. I spent hours just learning the correct amount of pressure to put on the thread. Too little and it would unravel. Too much and it would break. It took a lot of practice before, before I finally started making good flies. My flies may not be like world-class or to the standard of which I can sell them in a fly shop, but they'll catch fish. During that whole time of practicing his class, Dr. Christie was never unkind to his students. He was graceful as a human, but he was really gracious as a teacher. He extended grace to us when, when we didn't deserve it. I'm very competitive and would look around the room to see how good or bad I was doing in comparison to the other students. My fly tying skills and, well, I was judgmental, but he was really kind. 
And later, I remember as a senior, one of his English classes, as long as the senior student was passing the class, we were exempt from the final exam. I remember a lot of other students being frustrated that good grades didn't exempt them as well. See, he extended grace to us. He extended grace to us when we didn't deserve it. And grace is this, well, it's this really hard thing to come to terms with. See, as we live our lives, society tells us that we succeed by hard works and we only earn what we deserve. So when someone else is rewarded for something unearned, we use words and phrases like cheat or crook or that's not fair. And we see this played out in the story of the prodigal son. Luke 15, 11 through 32 reads, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the state. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that country, and he began to be in need. So we went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on the feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and get down and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property 
with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. You've got three people in this story. The younger brother who takes his share and wastes it. The older brother who is faithful. And of course, the father who loves them both. Now, most of us know this story, but I want us to imagine ourselves as each character for the next few minutes. So let's start with the younger brother. Have you ever had the right to something and couldn't wait to receive it? Like, have you ever had a Christmas present and you shook it because you want to try to guess what was inside? Well, see, as the younger brother, you don't want to wait for this present on Christmas Day that you're going to be getting from your dad. You essentially tell your dad, you're dead to me. Go ahead and give me my share now. The father's just a benefactor and nothing more. You don't love him. You don't care about him. And the same for your brother, as far as that goes. You are really just this, you're just a selfish punk. Now you take all this money and you go to Mardi Gras, essentially, and you spend it all until it's gone. Now you're broke, you're shoveling pig slop, and you're starving, and you think up the biggest and best apology possible just so you can be a hired hand. Now, if you're like me, apologies don't come easy. Maybe some of y'all you do, and you just love apologizing to people, but most of us don't. But this apology has got to be the creme de la creme of apologies. There's this Simpsons episode where Homer quits his job. He beats up on his boss before he leaves, and he ends up driving a golf cart over a wooden bridge, strikes a match, throws it over his shoulder, and lights the bridge on fire. That's the situation that you're in as the younger brother. So as you see your father running towards you, maybe even like bracing yourself, because I mean, let's face it, you did some serious damage before you left. And so he may be trying to take a punch at you, but you're trying to get this speech out that you've been practicing and shining. But instead of getting hit, you get hugged. I mean, this makes no sense. And now you're being thrown a party and dressed up? What? Now let's be honest, the older brother is thinking the exact same word. Because if you were the older brother, you see your, your younger brother do some serious damage before he left. He told your dad he was dead to him, and basically you as well. Good riddance to him. I mean, you love your dad and you stay devoted to him, and your wealth that was divided equally when he left, is now being hurt because you and your dad don't have as much income because of the lack of animals and farmland. So your half is slowly dwindling. And you come home one evening to a party and realize your brother's back and your dad is spending more of your inheritance on him. Seriously? Now, I mean, you're ticked with dad. You don't even come inside. 
So he's just making bad judgments all around. First, he gave away half of everything. Now he's giving away what would be yours too. You don't even call him brother anymore to your dad. Instead, you call him this son of yours. Let's take just a quick second. And everyone knows what that means because as a child or a parent, you've heard that phrase, your kid, instead of our kid. So you're pulling that card as a brother to your dad about your younger brother. How come I never get a party? This is not fair. He's a crook and drags his sorry tail back here and you put him on a pedestal? I can't believe you're even asking me to come in there and party with him like I'm glad to see him. You've got some nerve, Dad. Now try to look through the eyes of the dad. You've got two sons who you love deeply. And when the younger asks for his share, I mean, you love him so much you give it to him. And his words hurt all right, but it doesn't change the way that you feel about your son. And yes, you work with your older son who stays. He's always faithful to you and works hard and he loves you. You share all you have with him. Side though, there's this, there's this piece of you that is dead because your other son is not around anymore. It doesn't matter what or how much the older son does, he can't fill that emptiness in your heart that the other son left. Now all of a sudden, one day you see him again. You thought he was gone forever. So yeah, you drop everything and you do one of those running as fast as you can, ugly crying that nobody ever wants to get a picture taken of, and tackle to the ground type hugs. I mean, your heart is exploding with love for this son. So yeah, you throw a party and you want to share this love and joy with everyone. And that includes your older son. He's ticked though, you got to remember. I mean, in good Southern idiom form, He's pitching a hissy fit. He's fit to be tied. He's madder than an old wet hen. You beg and plead with him to come and party with you and your younger son. And when he tells you that this party is for your son, you even remind him that it's his brother too. You're trying to get the point across that all is whole once again in the family, even with mistakes made, and feelings hurt. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us have probably treated someone at some time in our life like the younger brother treats his father and the older brother. We want something that we think we are owed and it doesn't matter who we hurt to get it. But more often than not, we treat others like the older brother. When we do work hard, and do what we need to and expect others to earn their keep as well, not be rewarded for something that they didn't do. We get jealous when others receive something that we don't feel they're entitled to have. Now you may see the father in this story as a mediator, but he's not. His goal is not to bring the two brothers together through compromise. His goal is to keep his two sons. He wants to enjoy both of their company, 
even as different as they are. See, he's extending grace to both, and let's be honest, they both hurt him. Sure, the, the younger brother was really mean at the beginning, but at the end, the older one essentially called him an idiot and sort of said, your son gets his stupidity from you. Both brothers are abusive to the father, while the father remains devoted to each. The father's relationship with both sons is the thread of love that is woven in this story. And it's hard to understand a love that is this profound. His father is turning the other cheek to both sons. I mean, how will the younger brother repay the father, or will the older brother stay outside or come in? We don't know what they do. Jesus doesn't tell us the end of the story. But we know that the Father's love is continuous and unwavering. The choir sings a song, The King of Love My Shepherd Is, and our organist plays How Deep the Father's Love. And in contemporary, they're singing other songs about how wonderful God's love is for us. All of these pieces are musical reminders that we cannot comprehend how unmeasurable God's love for us is. It's so far beyond our comprehension that we, like the older brother, call the father crazy. I have a good friend who has his doubts about Christianity. In one conversation, he told me that he struggles with accepting God's grace because he can never repay it. So I'm thinking one night, and I'm like, well, he's got this younger daughter. And I said, okay, what if she's out on the street playing, car comes around the corner too fast, and you have enough time to push her out of the way, but you know it's going to hit you, and it'll take you out. Would you do it? He said, well, yeah, of course. And I said, okay. Would you want her to feel guilty for the rest of her life or feel like she had to earn that gift? He said, well, no. I said, if it were me, I would feel like it was a gift to be able to lay down my life for my child. I'm going to die one day. I mean, we all are. And if I can do that and save someone in the process, especially if it's someone I love, it would be a joy and the best gift I could give. I mean, Jesus echoes this in John 15, 13 by saying that no one has greater love than this than to lay down one's life one's friends. Grace and love from the Father isn't something that we earn or we have to pay back. It's something that is given freely and we have no control over who God gives it to. It's our part to simply receive it and that can be hard because it's so unimaginable. My father loves fishing. He taught me how to fish, when to set the hook, and even how to clean fish. I mean, I love fishing, but I love fishing with my father more than I do catching fish. Now, when both are happening, it's the best of both worlds. But his love for me is evident when we talk about life or work or family. And sometimes I get a little jealous when he tells me how he enjoys his grandson's company. I think I get a little envious but I realize that he has plenty of love to go around and I won't be missing out on it. 
Our Father's love is deeper and wider than we can fathom. It has no limitations or boundaries. I mean, it doesn't tire out at the end of the day. And this type of love is radical and transforming for both the one giving and the one receiving. At the end of the day, the only thing that can stand in the way of this kind of love is, well, it's us. Maybe we're the ones that are abusing it. Maybe we're the ones who are jealous of others who receive it. Maybe we need a lot more practice on how to be like the Father and give that love. We know the steps to take, and we've seen it done. But you probably won't get better until you can stop looking at others and how they've abused love, or stop abusing love yourself, and come to grips with the fact that good guidance and a lot of practice is all you need to be more like the Father. Once you can do that, well, maybe you'll be more like the one who can catch fish. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so grateful to be under your umbrella of love and grace. Sometimes we struggle with it. We struggle with the fact that we may not feel like we should be loved because of the sins that we've committed, God. Help us to understand that your grace and love have no limitations. There is nowhere that we can go where we are beyond those limits. Sometimes we struggle when we see others that we feel like are undeserving of that same grace and love. Remind us that that's not who you are. Remind us that it's not our place to be judgmental on them. The same love that you extend to us is the same love that you extend to them. Remind us that instead of being jealous or envious, that we should try to be more like the Father in this story. God, we should try to be more like you as our Father, extending grace and love to everyone, no matter what they've done, God, no matter who they are, because that's not our place to be judgmental, but to be loving. So we ask, God, that you make us mindful of these things and help us remember this as we walk out of our homes and out of the doors of the church, that we are to be beacons of your light. For it is in your Father's name that we pray. Amen.